just before you start listening to this podcast, a reminder that we have a special subscription offer. You can get 12 issues of The Spectator for £12, as well as a £20 Amazon voucher. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher if you'd like to get this offer. Hello and welcome to Women with Balls, where I, Katie Balls, talk to today's trailblazers. Today I'm delighted to be joined by Amber Rudd, Work and Pension Secretary and the Minister for Women and Equalities. Rudd previously served as Home Secretary, the third woman to hold that role. She was the fastest rising politician to a great office of state since the Second World War, having entered Parliament in 2010. Prior to entering Parliament, she worked for J.P. Morgan and in finance. However, her working role that is perhaps most regularly cited uh, was for Richard Curtis's Four Weddings and a Funeral, where she was credited as an aristocracy coordinator. During her time in Parliament, Rudd has earned her reputation for speaking her mind, particularly on Brexit. During the EU referendum, she campaigned for Remain and described Boris Johnson as someone you couldn't trust to take you home at the end of an evening. However, she now serves in Boris Johnson's government. In response to criticism over her decision to stay in Cabinet under Johnson, Rudd said, In this job, everybody will launch some sort of criticism about whatever decision you made. I made a decision to back a candidate in the leadership race, which was initially Jeremy Hunt, who was very clear that we needed to have no deal as part of the armory in negotiation. And having done that, I made my own decision to compromise and on that basis and to go ahead. So looking ahead, thank you very much for joining us today, Amber. Great to be here, Katie. Um, now, before we go ahead on this podcast, we like to start by hitting the rewind button and talking briefly about what you were doing before you were a politician. Okay. Um, there's lots to go through in terms of your political career, so I won't dwell on this too much, but you are an alumni of Cheltenham Ladies College. Yes, that's right. <laughs> and you later attended Edinburgh University. I was wondering, did you have any teen ambitions to be a politician? No, I have to say I didn't really. I mean, I was aware... Um, like anybody really who was interested in current affairs about what was going on around me. And I do remember waking up to Margaret Thatcher as a prime minister and the impact that she made on a young woman of seeing a prime minister that was a woman was hugely significant. So I was sort of more really gender aware than politically aware. And I had ambitions in different things. Like many young people, I didn't really know what I wanted to do, but I was always looking around for opportunities. And the sort of thing I wanted to do, I thought, was go into the foreign office or be a spy. Spy would be good. Spy would be good. So I really focused on making sure that I got a lot of training that might be useful. And in my teenage view, that meant languages. So I did a lot of languages when I was at school and university. So I'm still available for that slot, should it come up. <laughs> in just case MI5 is listening. And um, your brother is associated with New Labour. I was wondering, in your childhood, was politics discussed much around the dinner table? It was more about current affairs. So I had a very happy childhood, and I'm one of four children. And there were a lot of family meals where we would all test each other and joust with each other and talk about current affairs. Not particularly political, but very aware. We would have little quizzes and games and talk a lot about what was going on in the world internationally and nationally. So at what age did you start to, I suppose, call yourself a conservative? Um, during Edinburgh University, we've had many guests on this podcast, your cabinet colleague Liz Truss, you had a student politics phase, but it was a liberal democrat phase. <laughs> did, you, did you have any such? I, I didn't have a party political phase at university. I'd spent a lot of my time getting involved with the debating society, with the theatric society. We did a lot of plays. 
Uh, I think that my colleagues who are at Edinburgh University will particularly remind, remember me as playing a leading role in The Sound of Music. So it'd be wrong to say it was entirely political <laughs> Which role in did you play? Obviously the Baroness. Obviously, sorry. No singing role, but <laughs> a lot of strutting across the stage, drawing attention to yourself. So that was what I did at university. And public speaking... And a few other things, but not particularly party political. I was a feminist from a very early age. And I remember that my dissertation was on the death of feminism in the current generation. And looking back on it, I'm just glad that it's probably not available. At least I certainly hope it's not. All young Do you have a copy? Uh, yeah. Sadly not. Uh, all the young women doing their dissertations now will have them on record for the rest of their lives, I expect. We weren't in those days. But I definitely became... Uh, much more gender aware and much more aware of the need to stand up for women's rights when I was at university and that's something that really informed my politics. And what took you to finance? Genuinely I was thinking after as I was finishing my last year at university about what to do and Obviously, I wanted to become a spy, so I applied yeah. to the Foreign Office, did, the Civil Service. But did they... you apply for the spy scheme? Because I am <laughs> finishing university. Spy scheme sounds quite juvenile, doesn't it? But I did apply for the MI5 fast track where you where you put something in, but I never heard anything Ooh, back. Maybe they've still got you on file. Yeah, but I'm, I think I'm more that, dedicated in my effort. Yeah, I think that my early research as a potential spy failed me. And all I did was apply to the civil service and I clearly didn't impress them sufficiently. So instead I applied to a number of other organisations and one of them was JP Morgan. And it was particularly because JP Morgan had a great reputation but they also were doing a six-month induction course in New York. So as an appeal, it was pretty attractive to somebody leaving university. Um, now, I understand this wasn't your career highlight, but just because it does strike out, I was just wondering, could you talk us through being an aristocracy expert on four weddings and a funeral? Yes, that isn't quite How what did... I had in mind yeah. when I agreed to respond to their call for assistance. And I want to point out to you and to your audience that obviously it was a joke from their point of view. But it, my daughter did point out to me that the IMDB have run for a while Amber Rudd, aristocracy advisor. Trivial fact, Secretary of State, just to put it in proportion. Actually, what happened is a friend of a friend was working on the film set and called me up and said, we need some extras to appear in this film. Small, low-budget British film, just some people with the right outfits to wear for a wedding that they might wear at a British wedding. Can you help us and can you supply some other people? And blow me down, it rather grew into something larger than that. Yeah, I suppose at the time they didn't quite realise that you were going to go on to be a cabinet minister with this Them title. and me both didn't realise this was going to be the secret that haunts me as I try to establish myself as a, as a serious cabinet minister. Um, so moving on to deciding to go into politics, at what point did you decide you wanted to A, be an MP, but also a Conservative MP? Well, it was clear to me that looking back on it, that if I was going to go into politics, I was always going to be a Conservative. But the moment that came for me when I think it was sometime in my 30s when I was at a so social function with a number of people and I was sitting next to a friend of mine who is the wife of a Conservative MP. And I was doing what so many people do to me, which is boring on about what MPs should do, giving a lot of advice about why they're doing things wrong and how they could do this better. And finally, she snapped and she said, well, why don't you just do it yourself? And it was one of those things where a sort of window just opened. And I thought, I am going to try and do it myself. And I started from that moment on a journey which has taken me here. And it came out of the blue. And I said to my friends and my family, I've decided I'm going to be a member of parliament. And they all looked at me like I'd 
decided to be something absolutely extraordinary they'd never thought of, like, you know, something like, sort of, I've decided to be Tom Cruise or something. And nevertheless, I put myself to it and I pulled it off and I've been very lucky ever since. And in your efforts to become an MP, you tried for a seat in 2005 in Liverpool. And we've had various um, ministers, MPs on this podcast, and definitely those who aren't in safe seats or had to basically do, do the tough stints first, see it as a learning experience. Uh, your ex-husband, the late A.A. Gill, wrote an article about your efforts entitled Citizens of Liverpool Vote for My Ex-Wife, <laughs> which documents your efforts which at not all times were successful and also at points you appear to be worried for your safety (laughs) in several pubs what what was that like it was rather extraordinary him coming up to visit me and anybody who knew adrian knows he tended to dress in quite a dandyish fashion and so walking in some more challenging areas of liverpool with him in his bow tie and his tweed coat and he may well have been having some rather odd shoes on. I don't think it was my danger that I was worried about, but his, really. He was much more likely to be a target. But it was a great experience for somebody wanting to become an MP. You find out a little bit about yourself, about whether you enjoy engaging with people, knocking on the doorstep, trying to persuade them to think about it. And let me tell you, in that part of Liverpool, Conservatives were pretty rare. But there is something important about going through an election as a candidate, even though you're not going to win. And there is a moment, too, that comes to you during the campaign when you think, I might just do this, (laughs) however irrational it is. And at that moment, you think, and then on the day of the election, I don't like losing. Next time I'm going to win and hopefully try and put yourself forward for something else. Uh, You you didn't win it. You did get, I think, 9.8% of the vote yes quite a small amount (laughs) under the circumstances were you surprised by by your percentage in a positive or negative way or just I decided I didn't want to do this one again I wanted an opportunity to win somewhere next time and then you were put on the conservative a-list yes um, which sounds very glamorous but it was actually Cameron's invention aimed at broadening the base of candidates and the idea was being that you'd in a way uh, get a good pick of seats yes Um, and I was wondering, just because from an outside perspective, your current seat, Hastings and Rye, it isn't what you could call a safe seat. Uh, why did you, in a way, why did you go for that seat? Were you not tempted to go for something with a larger vote share? So, so you're right that the first Cameron's A-list was entirely about trying to make sure that there were more women on the list. It was, you know, there were 50 men and 50 women on the first tranche of the list. And the idea was that once women were in the selection process, because not enough women were getting into the selection process, then they would do the rest themselves. And actually, from that point of view, it was incredibly successful because we avoided all women shortlists, but we had women in the finals and women getting selected. I just knew Hastings and I knew if I could, I could win it and wanted to be selected there. It was, it was Labour held. It was a town I knew. I wanted to be on the South Coast somewhere if I could. And I went down and visited it when I knew it was going to come up for selection and I fell in love with it so I decided to really put my heart and soul into winning it and was really pleased when I did. And on entering Parliament you quickly became involved in several I suppose women's areas, um, tackling FGM, tackling sex equality. Um, Did you feel on getting to Parliament that you wanted to have a focus on genders as one of your main interests? I think that when I a lot of my effort to get into at the time getting into Parliament took up my planning really not till I got into parliament did I really pause and think now what am I actually going to try and do and I tried to do things to do with my constituency and things that were really part of my broader interests so I 
started by getting on the DEFRA Select Committee and getting involved in things that really mattered to Hastings and Rye to do with fishing. But I also, you're absolutely right, have always had a long-term interest in trying to get involved with what people loosely call women's issues. But again, the area I was particularly interested in was areas that would affect women in Hastings. And we had, at the time, one of the highest rates of teenage pregnancies. So I did a study, cross-party study, with other women MPs, which was absolutely fascinating, about what was going on, what we could do, and what we could change. And your first, I suppose, move into government was when you made PPS to the then Chancellor George Osborne. Now, PPS, to those listening who aren't sure, is often termed glorified bag carrier. Uh, but I think it's a slightly more glamorous bag carrier when, it, when it's the Chancellor. And um, how did that come about? So it came absolutely as a surprise to me. What actually happened was the week before the appointment was made, I suddenly got a call from his office saying the Chancellor would like you to come to his barbecue on Saturday at Dorney Wood. And I I really didn't know George Osborne at all. And so I thought, oh my God, I've arrived, I've been noticed. So I got my best outfit, I turned up at Dorney Wood for the barbecue, only to find another 100 MPs there, which slightly (laughs) defeated what I had planned. And then during the barbecue, and I was still wondering what I was doing there, one of his spads came up to me and said... Uh, can I be the first to congratulate you on becoming the Chancellor's PPS? And I said, what? And he said, oh, my God, he hasn't told you yet. Well, don't tell the Chancellor that I've told you. Of course I won't, I said. Went straight up to George Osborne. And I say, I hear I'm in the running to be your PPS. And he looked around for finding out who might have told me. And then I pitched him. uh, But I think they'd already decided. So that's how it came about. And PPS is is a fairly junior role in government, but you have a front row seat in the Treasury. So was it a learning curve? Did you you learn? I mean, George Osmond was regarded as a very cunning politician. Uh, Did it give you the inside track? Uh, It was fascinating to work for George Osborne. He is regarded as a great political mind for good reason, because he thinks about the politics of not only Treasury policy, but wider party and government policy. And the role of PPS to him was very much acting as the bridge to MPs, because almost every Conservative MP has something relevant to do in their constituency that they want to pitch to the Chancellor. And he's interested in what they're saying and thinking. So being that bridge and that voice on both sides was fascinating. And then you were fairly quickly promoted to Cabinet. You say you're Secretary of State for Energy and Climate Change. When you get a cabinet role, how does that affect your life in many ways? It is something which many people say takes over. Was it a learning curve for you? It certainly was a learning curve. All cabinet roles are huge learning curves. Actually, all ministerial roles are learning curves. But the cabinet one, of course, is more so because you're much more visible. As a minister, you have a lot of the work to do, but you're not quite as visible. So the responsibility as a cabinet minister is much higher. I had done a year already as a minister in the department. So it was when we came out of coalition, because we got the majority in 2015, that David Cameron was clearly looking around for somebody to become Secretary of State to replace Ed Davey. And I crossed his mind because I'd done a year before and as junior minister. So it was a learning curve, but at least I'd done a year in it before. Now, perhaps an even bigger learning curve has been 2016, when you were promoted to Home Secretary. It's one of the great opposites of the state. Were you surprised at the time when you were offered it? I was very surprised. I was just coming out of uh, the referendum result where I'd been on the losing side. And so I had no expectations at all. I was not sure 
that I would keep a job in cabinet at all. I rather thought it might be entirely replaced by people who were on the winning side. So it was a huge surprise to me. What did that conversation with Theresa May go like? Do you take very long to say yes or do you do it immediately? We had Tracy Crouch on this podcast and she was explaining how under David Cameron, she was offered a sports minister and she basically left him hanging, I think, for several days, uh, was out of London, didn't have phone signal to the point and they were just saying, pick up your phone. <laughs> Um, I'm not somebody who negotiates on cabinet roles, I have to say. And I I still find it slightly nonplussing that some colleagues negotiate when they're being offered such a serious responsibility and role. So, no, I just, I was still slightly in shock. But when I was offered it, I was very grateful and I accepted it. What, looking back, I was wondering, what is your proudest moment in the Home Office? 2017, which was my full year as a Home Secretary, was blighted by huge amounts of terrorism. And we move on our minds very quickly since then. But if you cast your mind back, it was an extraordinary year where we had attack after attack after attack. And it felt like the whole country was under attack. And as the Home Secretary at the time, I was looking around and trying to find what levers I could pull to try and reduce our vulnerability. While all the time going on the news, it felt for a while it was, every fortnight trying to reassure everybody that we had this under control. And the thing I think I did best and that is most lasting is that I negotiated and set up with the Americans the Global Internet Forum for Counterterrorism, which is a active online-run site which a number of the largest social media companies manage, and they have a chairman, I think it's Google at the moment who manage it, And they work with other smaller social media companies to make sure that radical material is taken down. Because we discovered that every one of those attacks had some online presence involved in it, either showing the attacker how to make a bomb or influencing them in terms of their radicalisation. And we took great steps, I think, lasting steps, to make sure the material is less easy to access now. And what impact does a role like Home Secretary have on your life? Because in terms of, for example, security, I think it's the highest level of security after the Prime Minister. So you go from almost, I suppose, living your own life to having, I don't know the number, but a number of uh, men, women who are trained basically following most of your moves. Yes, you do. Nothing prepares you for that. It is an extraordinary experience that your independence is completely taken away because you have to have a diary that reports exactly what you're doing and when, and they are with you all the time. And you going around to either see a private house or to go to a cafe or restaurant, they have checked it out first. So it has a huge impact on your life. And as somebody who is new to it, and the new Home Secretary will be having that at the moment, it is an important and difficult adjustment. But they are lovely people, and they are very keen to always reassure you and say, you know, just carry on your life, we'll make our arrangements around you. And they do their best to do that. But it's not normal. And it is an extraordinary experience. Now, just talking about your role in the Home Office, you left that role amid the Windrush scandal. And I wanted to talk briefly about Looking back on that, there was a few moments during your time in the Home Office when I think as a politician, you come across as a liberal conservative, you speak about the positives of immigration and so forth. And there are a few times when I think there were things that didn't seem to be as in keeping with your personal politics. So there is this speech on foreign workers at Conservative Conference, and then later on, the hostile environment policy. And you also spoke about the fact you had Theresa May, your your Home Office predecessor, 
as your boss, as Prime Minister. I was wondering, did you feel sometimes as though, in retrospect, you could have been more assertive of your own own views? Yes, I do think that. And it is something I have learnt and have brought, I hope, to this role. It's a difficult balance to get sometimes between not wanting to demolish the position that your predecessor took, particularly if she's become Prime Minister, but to make your own changes and do the things that you believe in as well. And I do think that I was slow to adjust to that. And I hope that I haven't done so, so much in this job. But I do also think that the Home Office is like a huge ship. If you're trying to move it, you need a lot of time and you need still waters and a lot of support. And in my tenure at Home Office... It was really dominated for me by the terrorist attacks we were having. And I put much more of my effort into that than I did into trying to change policies, which might have been, in the longer term, constructive for the population. Now, talking about the 2017 SNAP election, many years we're trying to whip through here. (laughs) um, You stood in for Theresa May in in one of the leadership debates. Yes. Uh, Your father had recently passed away before that. And... At the time, you were commended for your efforts. Then we fast forward again to the night of the SNAP election and things don't go exactly to plan for the Conservative Party, I think you could say in an understatement. I was wondering, as someone who had a central role, you could say, in that campaign, what is it like to, for one, were you taken by surprise by what happened on the night of the SNAP election? Uh, by the outcome? Yeah. Yes, I was. Uh, and I think everybody was. I mean, you always find some people who said, I saw it coming. But most of the MPs <laughs> yeah, I, I speak many to... many Tory MPs now who will say, I knew it. I knew it, exactly. Um, most of the MPs I talked to on Labour as well thought that there would be a completely different outcome. So I think many of us were surprised by it. I mean, I, I as you know, I nearly, I nearly lost in Hastings and Rye. Got a majority now of 346. So it was really touch and go. But I think that we had... We have since done, I hope, as a party, a lot of thinking about some of the policies that came out and what the public think about a snap election. We'll get to that. Um, In the hours, as you're seeing, I suppose, the exit poll, (laughs) I'm just thinking about a work disaster, for example, where, you know, it's, it's a much smaller crisis, but you're calling various people. What happens in the hours between an exit poll saying the Tories don't have a majority and the reality, which I think was perhaps even worse than the exit poll? Yes, I was sitting with a girlfriend in Hastings when the exit poll came out and we were sitting there quite relaxed thinking, oh, it's going to be fine. It comes out. And because she's a girlfriend, but she doesn't really understand politics, she's like, yeah! And I was like, no, no, this is not good. This is not going to be okay. And then you're not allowed really to go to the count for a few hours because your team doesn't really want you there too soon. And then I turned up at the count at about, I can't remember, about midnight, I think it was, longing to get there sooner. But they were like, we don't want you yet, Amber. And I turned up and my chairman and agent had clearly, they tell me afterwards, decided just to reassure me. Uh, They had absolutely no grounds to do so, it turned out. But since the result wasn't coming out for another two hours, and rather than tell me what they really thought, which is we were in deep trouble and it was touch and go, they just said it's going to be fine. It's going to be fine. And not until the final second when the agent actually was given the numbers, and we were given the numbers and there was 346 between us, did I go slightly white and realise the scale of it because they had just lied to me for a few hours in order to keep me on side. But there we are. I'm very grateful because the result worked out. (laughs) Do you turn to the wine on a night like that? I would if it was available, but in our account, we don't have any alcohol at all available. So that's a mistake. Yeah. Um, Now, to your current role, 
DWP. They're touching on from the fact you mentioned your your rather small majority at the moment. Uh, now there are some people who say it's quite risky to put some of the small majority as yours in a department such as yours where you're in charge of universal credit. Does that worry you at all? It doesn't worry me because I believe that the changes that I can make to universal credit and the changes I can make to our pensions and the benefit system overall are the right thing to do and are going to be well received by people. And I think that I've demonstrated that I can do that over the past eight months. So I hope in Hastings, as in anywhere else, it'll be viewed as a positive thing that this government and I am able to deliver on. Now to the final section of this podcast, moving to the present day. We are in the midst, and you touched on the the general election of things moving rather fast in politics. So what we talk about now by the time this podcast is out might even have moved. But we had a situation, as I touched on in my introduction, where, I mean, in the past, you've made no secret of your views on Brexit. You campaigned passionately for Remain. And you also have spoken a lot in the past about avoiding a no-deal Brexit. But you surprised some of your colleagues when Boris Johnson did become Prime Minister by saying you could back him. I was just wondering... It now seems to me, at least on social media, that you've gone from being criticised by Brexiteers to to also often being criticised by Lowe's, I suppose, pushing for a soft Brexit or a Brexit deal. Does it get to you having criticism of your move on Boris Johnson? It's not particularly pleasant, but I think it's a function of putting yourself into the public life that everybody has a view on you. And they're going to let you know. And at the moment, you're right. Both teams seem to think I've done the wrong thing. So you can only stay reasonably calm about it if you examine your own conscience regularly and try and look at why you're doing it. And I I have looked at this very carefully. And I felt it was the right thing to do early in the year not to have no deal because we hadn't yet tried with the withdrawal agreement again. I wanted to make sure we had the chance to do that. We hadn't yet tried to get a deal with Labour that we could get through. I wanted to make sure we could do that. But now I feel that we have exhausted all those possibilities. And to leave the European Union, we do need to get some changes to get it through Parliament. So that's why I'm backing Boris with the prospect of no deal on the table. But it doesn't change my view about no deal, which I think that it would be a very bad thing for this country. And I want to make sure that I do all I can to help the government get a deal so it doesn't come to that. And I was just wondering on that, it has seemed the past couple of years that people almost have hardened their Brexit position rather than moving, I suppose, to what would be a compromise on both sides. Theresa May was trying to push for that compromise. Do you think we need more compromise in politics? I definitely do. I mean, one of the extraordinary things, you're right to highlight it, is that while this disagreement rages in the country, in the party, in both parties, instead of people saying, where is the compromise position? Everybody's just digging in further. And they're digging in with this incredible high moral tone about each other. And they're just using anything to justify it. And here's what I think is really going wrong, is that everybody thinks that they have the right interpretation of what democracy is. So some people will say Parliament is sovereign, and some people will say the referendum is sovereign, and another group will say, but what about the law? And nobody's acknowledging that democracy has many different layers, and what we need is to think about how we make all those layers work so that we're not pitting one side against the other, each believing so passionately 
in their own rightness about it. Now, I w- we won't talk about Brexit for too long because I think you probably have to do a lot of that <laughs> yes. in your day to day. But just just on that, we've heard this week that the government are planning to threaten or not threaten basically any Tory MPs who rebel in a Brexit vote this week, um, perhaps vote for an extension or to legislate against no deal, will be have the whip removed and not be allowed to stand at the next election. You speak of compromise and I know when you joined Boris Johnson it's to get a Brexit deal but if you look at I suppose some of your One Nation caucus colleagues who might be falling into that route does it worry you that at that stance? It does and I have made my views clear to the Prime Minister that we should not be a party that is trying to remove from our party two former chancellors, a number of ex-cabinet ministers, that the way to hold our party together and to get a deal is to bring them on side and explain to them what we're trying to do and why. I don't think it's fair either to consider removing the whip from a group of people who oppose no deal, which is not the government position, but is a legitimate conservative position, and not to remove the whip from people who have consistently voted against the withdrawal agreement and may yet vote against the agreement that Boris Johnson brings back before October the 31st. So I'm really urging the government to think very carefully about taking such a dramatic step. And if they do take the stance that MPs vote in a future date, we get a Brexit deal. Boris Johnson proves that million to one was a correct diagnosis. And some Tory MPs don't vote for that Brexit deal. Would you think the same thing should apply? That's exactly what I think. I think there has to be fairness in this. If this government is now going to be very tough about following the whip, I don't think it should apply it discriminately. It should be one case for all. And just final on that, I was wondering, lots of people are saying now the Conservative Party is the party of leave. Do you think there has been a shift? There there were five million voters who voted Conservative in the last election who were Remainers. I think that we should remain a party that has a wide range of views on the European Union. Now... Just looking at your Women and Equalities brief, there are a few issues which appear to be live in government at the moment. So one is there have been reports recently that young female advisers are being axed from government. Now, the number 10 line is that it's nothing to do with gender, or at least what sources say. I was wondering, is that something that worries you at all? Yes, it is. The only time I've... Last time I've seen women treated like that was when I was on the trading floor at JP Morgan, when you expected, I'm afraid to be frog-marched out if something happened. And I think we need to be very careful as a government to behave in the way we expect other people to behave, which is treating young people, men and women, fairly. Now, the last one here is, there's some talk about the domestic abuse bill Mm. and whether it rolls over as in a new Queen's speech, something Boris Johnson is planning to bring in late October. There are some reports it might not be included in that. I was wondering, do you think it should be? It definitely should be. I mean, the domestic abuse bill is something that I worked on hard as Home Secretary. It's an important part of what I think we should be delivering as a government. And it shows, I mean, it's not only of value to women, which is important, but it's actually a good indication and demonstration that this is a government that's thinking about women's lives. And this is one of the reasons I'm in politics, is that we need more and more women in politics, because only with women in politics will you get 
women's lives, women's security, women's working lives taken seriously. And holding on to the Domestic Abuse Bill and other programmes we have to support women is incredibly important. Uh, now, a slightly lighter note to end the podcast on. I wanted to bring up, and I'm not sure if you remember it, a Marina Hyde article back when Theresa May appeared to be in trouble. And uh, this is an article in The Guardian, and a segment of it was tweeted, I was put on social media, and you appeared to like it. <laughs> but, but then the like disappeared. Oh. But, um, but what, what Marina Hyde said was, she was talking about the fact that someone, and she thought it was you, um, needed to give Theresa May the talk, which was along the lines of, babe, true friends tell the truth, am I right? Because um, if no one is, else is going to say this, then I will. The referendum vote was problematically close anyway, and then you totally spaffed your majority. Like, you literally have no majority. So you need to stop acting like Mariah Carey, okay? On the plus side, you look great in that trouser suit, and I've brought around two bottles of Carver. Did you ever give Theresa May the talk? Uh, Sadly, I didn't have that sort of relationship with Theresa May. But I have to tell you, Marina Hyde, I admire enormously, even though she writes brutally, I can actually I say confidently that she was incredibly rude and nasty about me in her last column. But, but I did laugh every minute. Um, now, the two questions we always ask guests on this podcast to finish this uh, is the first, which is what is your best advice to listeners for getting a pay rise? Ask for it. And if you don't get anywhere, ask for it again. This is the problem, particularly for women, is they tend not to ask for it. So go and sit down, talk to your boss and ask for it. And final question, what is the worst advice you've ever been given? Well, unfortunately, the worst advice I ever gave was to my son, who was caught smoking when he shouldn't have been. And I said, darling, darling, just tell the truth. And you sure, mum? I'm like, yes, yes, just tell the truth. He told the truth and I'm afraid it didn't go well for him. So we're trying to revise that family advice in future. (laughs) Thank you, Amber, and thanks very much for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks for listening. And if you'd like to send us your feedback on this podcast or any other many podcasts, please do get in touch. Just email us at podcast at spectator.co.uk.